It's good to see you guys. Welcome to Portico Church Arlington. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. And so good to have you here. If you are visiting, welcome. So glad to have you. If you are kind of in the um, phase of searching for a new church, we're also glad that you're here. And we would love to get you connected to our church more. So to do that, you can just swing by the hospitality team. Um, they have a little desk in the hallway back here, and they can answer any questions that you have, just meet you, get to know you, um, and then also show you kind of the pathways for getting further connected here at Portico. I would also love to meet you, so I'll be hanging out, hanging out after the service. Um, please feel free to come up and say hi and introduce yourself to me. That would be awesome. I've got a couple of announcements for you guys here before we start into the sermon. Um, first is that we have... Um, a need for more volunteers on our worship team specifically. And so if you are someone who can play bass, if you're someone who can play keys, if you're someone who can lead worship potentially or have done that in the past, please see Johnny Reed. Pastor Johnny leads the worship team, and you can um, meet him today. You can also just send him an email at jreeve at porticoarlington.org, and we would love to get you connected to that team. Secondly, um, it is... Now July, and that means we have Abide coming up on the last Thursday in July, which I believe is the 28th. Um, and let me just tell you, I was at Abide this last week, and it was really cool to see the purpose of Abide, which is just a space to come and pray. Um, it was really cool to see that um, at work, because we had somebody come in who has like a very loose connection to our church through the other churches that meet here, and she came in, and she received prayer, and you could tell that that was something that she really needed in that moment. Um, and so it was really cool for us to be able to be here to receive her and to serve her in that way by praying for her. And so please join us for that. Even if you're like, I don't really need prayer, but you just have some time, you can actually be somebody who prays and receives somebody um, who is in need of prayer. And if you're in need of prayer, please do come for that. We would love to pray for you in that way. Next is July 15th and 16th, I believe. It might be 14th and 15th. Um, whatever that Friday and Saturday is, we are doing Foundations. Foundations is the, um, it's a great way to get introduced to Portico. So it's for people who are new and wanting to learn more and get a little bit more in-depth information about the church. Um, we do a dinner with the leaders and kind of like an introduction to the community of Portico on Friday night from 6.30 to 8.30, and it's going to be at Pastor Johnny's house. Um, and then Saturday morning, the next morning from 9 to 1, we kind of do like a um, once over of all of the theology of the church. And so you get to hear kind of what the church believes. And it's a great tool for discipleship, for teaching you how to continue to grow um, in your relationship with the Lord. And it shows you actually how we fulfill our mission of uniting people to life in Christ. So please register for that. Space is somewhat limited. Um, and we would love to have you join us for that. All right, that's all the announcements I've got for you guys. We are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and I'm loving it. Um, it's a really sweet book, um, and it's a really rich book. And so we are going to slow down a little bit today, um, because last week we covered a lot of ground. And today is kind of like a recap of what we covered, and then it just pushes us in a little bit deeper. So we're going to be learning what it means that Jesus is our great high priest, and very practically what that looks like for us. What does that matter? Why is that important to know? And so I want to talk to you guys first, before we read um, the scripture this morning, about this concept of home. 
because it's a metaphor, it's an image that the author of Hebrews uses and will continue to use into this for this week and next week as well um, to kind of illustrate, to help us understand what it is that Jesus does as our high priest. And it's really interesting because he doesn't make the connection explicit. He just goes from talking about Jesus as the high priest to talking about a home. And it's like, well, what does one have to do with the other? It's not obvious to us. And so I want to think about what it means that God is building a house. What does that mean? And we can understand that. That's why God puts that image in there, is because we can actually understand something tangible that we have an experience of. And again, we're talking about the ideal version of a home. And in the simple world, of course, homes are broken. They're places where you experience pain and fracture. But what he's doing is he's showing you the ideal version of a home. What is it? It's a place of belonging. It's a place of rest. It's a place of flourishing. It's a place of order. It's a place of peace. It's a place of purpose. All of these things are woven into this concept of what it means to be home. And this was especially important for the Hebrew people. If you think about their own history, going back all the way to Abraham, what did God tell Abraham? Hey, Abraham, get up and go. Leave your home and go to a place that I will show you. And he did that for his whole life. And then he died on the go, right? And that just continued to be the story of the people of Israel, is they, they were on the move. They were a people without a home. And so this passage today is actually really informed by a beautiful, um, a beautiful description of when Israel was finally provided with the land and when David became the king. And it's in 1 Chronicles 17, and I'll just, we're not going to read through it again, but I just want to kind of summarize it to you. David has just entered the land with the Israelites. So he led them into the land, and he is the king now. And so they've settled as the kingdom, and they're thinking like, okay, what do we do now? We have this place. And David goes to the Lord, and he says, Lord, I am living in a house of cedar, but you are in a tent still. You're still in the tabernacle. And so that's not fair. I want to build for you a house so that you can be here permanently. And we understand that. We understand that impulse. We're like, oh yeah, we would want to do that for God too. Like that, that isn't right. Why, why would it be that David is in a house of cedar and that the Lord is still in a tabernacle and not the temple? But the Lord's response to him is really interesting. He says, David, I have no need of a house. You can't build for me a house. I will build you a house, and I will make you into my house. And it's not through an actual constructed building that he does it, but he does it by reminding David of the promise that he made to David, that I will make my kingdom established on your throne eternally, so that there's a descendant on you're on my throne from you forever. And so we see this, this identification of the people of God with this idea of a king 
that's idealized in David, but then fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is an impulse I think that we have too, is that we come to God and we think, okay, in response to what God has done for me, now I'm going to do something for him. But what this passage and what David learned is that God has no need for us to build him a home. He doesn't need us to belong. He is perfect. He doesn't need us. So it's not like we are fulfilling some lack that God has. Instead, what God is doing is he's inviting us into him, that he would be dwelling with us, and that all of our longings, those longings for belonging, for peace, for rest, for purpose, for order, all of those will be finally fulfilled in him. And so that's what we're going to see here this morning. Um, So please turn with me. We're going to be in Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that we are your house, that you have taken up residence in your people, and that you are continuing to build us up into the perfect image of your Son so that we might dwell with you forever, that we would be your people, and that you will be your God. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have called us into that, and that we get to enjoy that, that we get to dwell on that truth, that we get to think about that, to focus ourselves. And so I ask that you would help us this morning, that you would help us um, not be distracted by everything else, but that we would hear your word, that we would consider Jesus this morning, that we would put our minds to work thinking about him, thinking your thoughts after you, Lord. We need your help to do this. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that is essentially what we're going to be doing this morning, is we're going to be concentrating on our calling in Christ, concentrating on our calling in Christ. And there's really three things that we, the text wants us to consider to help us do that. The first is to consider our calling, right? We need to consider our calling, think about, reflect on our calling. The second is to consider Jesus and all of the things that we're learning about Jesus through the word. We're going to specifically look at him as apostle, him as high priest, him as God. And then finally, we're going to consider our confidence. What are we confident in? 
What does our calling give us confidence in, and what does that look like in our lives? So consider your calling, consider Jesus, consider your confidence. So first is this first verse of chapter 3, consider your calling. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So a couple things about this calling to know is that this calling is from God. That is the heavenly calling. It comes from heaven. It is a calling from God. It's coming from God. It's coming from God in his word, through the prophets. If you remember back to chapter 1, saying this word, this calling has been given to our fathers in many different ways, through the prophets, through the word that they were proclaiming to our people. And now that word has appeared, and it's Jesus. So Jesus sent by God is the embodiment of this calling. And that's what Jesus does in his earthly ministry, isn't it? He brings the gospel. He calls people to repentance and to belief. And so he has a message that he brings. And if you look in the gospels, the thing that Jesus does anytime he kind of gives his like stump speech is he says what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And he is the good news. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And he was kind of a living testimony of what that looked like. And he accomplished the good news through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So the calling is something that is coming from God, and it's to be heard and received and believed in the earth. And so we receive that calling, so what do we do? We receive it, we trust it, we hear it, we believe it. And you know that you have been called because you do those things, because you receive it. You hear a call to repentance, you hear a call from a holy God, and you become convicted of sin, but not without hope. Conviction of sin that turns you towards faith in a Savior towards faith in Christ. That is your calling. The calling is also a call to be holy. It's a call to be holy. It says, therefore, holy brothers. And as is true most of the time in in scriptures, when you see brothers, it's the word for brothers and sisters. It's inclusive of both. So it's not just the brothers who are holy, but it's the people that are holy. Holy brothers. Wow. How, do you, how many of you guys feel holy this morning? Maybe some of you do. It's hard. It's hard to hear that and to receive it because we don't feel that. We don't resonate with that call to be called holy. What does holy mean? It means pure. It means beautiful. It means undefiled. It means devoted. It means singularity, one thing. It's a purity of heart. That we would, all we would desire is God. And so this is a calling that brings with it an awareness that we aren't holy. And this is part of our calling is that is that it's not in our own holiness that we are called, but it's in the holiness of Christ. 
You see how our, our concentration has to go to the calling that we have in Christ. This is what Christians believe. This is what we'll get to in a minute. But it's what the work of Jesus did is that he lived that perfect life and then his death, his resurrection, he died for us and he raised the life for us. And when you receive the calling, you receive him. You receive his righteousness. You receive his life. It's accounted to you. And so this is the heavenly calling. It's God's calling and he calls you holy not because of you, but because of Christ. And he looks on Christ, and you are hid in Christ by faith. By trusting, receiving that calling, you are holy on account of Christ. And so what do you do? You want to become holy. You want to live according to that calling. And so we should all have a desire to kind of align our lives with that call of being holy. We should want to walk in progressive holiness for all of our days, and we should want to do that with each other. We'll get to that in a second. The next thing is that it's a call to heaven. So we're considering our call. This is a heavenly calling. It orients us towards heaven. So in orienting us towards heaven, we are taking our eyes off of the world. We realize that our destination is not with this earth, but it's with a new heaven and a new earth that is coming from heaven, which is where Christ is seated. When we consider Jesus, when we look to him, we look towards heaven because that's where he is. And so this is part of the whole um, theme of the book of Hebrews is that when Jesus came, he revealed the heavenly perfection of what had only been hinted at in earthly shadows. So he was the substance. He was the heavenly fulfillment of the earthly blueprint. And so our calling is to that. It's not to this earth but it's towards that end. It's towards heaven. It's a heavenly calling. And then finally, going back in verse one, this is a call that we receive together. It's plural. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters. This is not something you can do on your own. It's not something that you receive in isolation and live out privately in the recesses of your own heart. That's a lie. This is something that you receive as the people of God, plural, and that God works out in you through his people, that we are receiving this call together and we're going together. And here's why this is important. If we are thinking about the idea of home, part of what distinguishes a house from a home is the togetherness. It's the community. It's the being known. It's the belonging. And we can't do that on our own. We can't do that if we are autonomous, independent people who are only authority is ourselves, our own desires, our own experiences. We have to receive the call together. So what are, what are some other callings that distract us 
Because this is why, this is the heart of the author of Hebrews, is that he wants the people who he's writing this letter to to make it to the end. He wants them to make it, to hold tight to the Christian faith, to live faithfully as Christians to the end. And he's telling them, consider your calling. You who share in this calling, think about it, focus on it. That implies that there are other callings that distract us. There are other callings that take our eyes off of that and put our eyes back on the things of the world. For his original audience, it was certainly the fact that they had been called primarily out of a Hebrew context. They were still Hebrews. They still belonged to families, but now all of a sudden they were worshiping very differently. They weren't following the sacrificial code. They weren't following all of the precepts that are outlined in Exodus and Deuteronomy. They weren't doing that anymore because they believed that Christ had fulfilled those things. And so now they were worshiping God through the Son of God, which would have been blasphemous because so many Hebrews did not believe that God had a son because God was one. They weren't looking for the Messiah to be God himself. And so there was a calling that was pulling them away from that heavenly calling, pulling them back into those relationships. And we get that. That's hard. <laughs> this, is, this is completely honest of how hard this is. If you think about that for a minute, how hard that would be. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Where it's like your calling in Christ has ripped you out of a family because they have rejected that and now want to wrestle you, try and wrestle you back into the way that family worships. It's part of how Jesus says when he is talking to his disciples that he came not to bring peace but a sword. He knew that his calling on people's lives were going to take them out of families. Because guess what? He is the creator of all families. So you can't worship the creation over the creator. And he was calling everyone to worship him because he is God. So what is that for us? There's probably a lot of things. Work is certainly one of them. I know for this area, our work can seem so important, and it is important. But it, be, it can become ultimately important. And you can begin to see yourself as essential for preserving the order of the world. Because companies put that on you. Agencies put that on you. They give you this grand mission and then show you how essential you are to accomplishing that mission because, well, that will make you work harder if you think that the world depends on what you do. And so you can start to make decisions. You can start to sacrifice your heavenly calling for that calling. Relationships, a calling to be in a relationship, not just a romantic relationship, but any type of relationship that kind of fulfills that longing that we have or seems to fulfill that longing that we have for belonging, for intimacy, for peace, for rest, for purpose, those, again, when made ultimate, can distract you from this heavenly calling. 
Notice how both of those things are good things. They're actually things that are given by God as gifts. You should work, and you should work well. And you should understand how your work is fitting into God's plan for this world. But as soon as it becomes ultimate, then you've lost your heavenly calling. Same with relationships. He's given us each other to be in relationship. But if those relationships start to pull us out of or make us live in tension with walking with Christ, then we're following a different calling. We're starting to think about something else other than him. So consider your calling. Think about it. What is calling you? And where is it calling you to? And then finally, really, the meat of this passage is this phrase, and it's a command. It's, it's an um, exhortation. Consider Jesus. And this is coming in kind of a line of exhortations that he's dropped on us so far. And he's done it kind of subtly. And I think it's really fun to think and look at what he's doing. The first thing he says is, pay close attention to what you have heard, right? The beginning of chapter 2. Pay close attention to what you heard so that you don't drift away from it. And then, as he's talking about kind of the, um, the already and not yet world of a world that's subjected to God, subjected to Christ, but we don't yet see it, he says, but we see Jesus. So it's a subtle way of saying, look at Jesus, look to him, see him, see the crucified king, see his life lived for you as you live in this world of already and not yet. And now finally, he tells us to consider Jesus. And this is important for his purpose of wanting us to persevere, wanting us to make it, because he doesn't just say, oh, take a glance, take a passing glance, or just think really quickly about Jesus. He uses this verb, consider. When you think about this, it kind of makes you want to slow down. It makes you want to narrow your focus, to consider something, to meditate on it, to reflect on it. Consider Jesus. Don't be satisfied with a surface-level knowledge of Jesus. Don't think that if you just know the very bare bones of who Jesus is and what he's done, that you're going to have much confidence that you're going to make it. The author is urging us to consider Jesus, push into it. So how do we do that? Well, he directs us to consider Jesus, who is the apostle. He's the apostle of our confession. He is the one who is sent. He's not an apostle like the 12 apostles. He is the apostle. He is the one sent from God. He is the message that God has for us. He is the apostle. What does it mean for Jesus to be sent from God? We've already talked about it a little bit in the first part. It means he came from heaven. It means it is a messenger sent from heaven to you. John 3.16, it also means that God so loved us, so loved this world that he sent his son. He sent his son into a world 
of death and darkness and brokenness for you. So when you consider Jesus as the apostle, you're starting to now see the heart of God for you, that he would give. He desires you to know him. He desires to be reconciled to you by sending his son. And then as we consider Jesus, we're also looking at Jesus as the high priest. And we're going to continue to unpack what this means throughout this whole book, because that's kind of the grand theme of the book, is Jesus as the high priest. And it's one of the only places in Scripture where that's really developed fully. But some of the things that we've already talked about in terms of what the high priest did, we can focus on here this morning as we consider Jesus as the high priest. The high priest is the mediator between God and man. The high priest, his designation was to go into the most holy part of the temple where the very dwelling place of God was and to come out and feed the people with the glory of God that he had experienced in the temple. To lead the people in worship, to lead them in offering sacrifices, to reconcile the people to God. So we consider Jesus as our high priest. How did Jesus do that? And considering this, we just, we just so often will gloss over it. We won't think about it slowly and carefully. And I want to urge you guys to do that, to think about how Jesus is your high priest, namely through his sacrifice and what that entailed. He's your high priest because he represented you before the holy God of Israel. And he faced what justice required for a sinful, sinful people. He faced the purifying wrath of God on our behalf. But he also faced scorn. He also faced humiliation. This is the same person as the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. And now his creation is spitting on him, is whipping him, is cutting him, is piercing his side, is nailing stakes into his arms. Why on earth did he allow that to happen? Why, even further than allow, why did he want that to happen? Why, as it was happening, his prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's because he's your priest. He's doing that for you. And so if you think about this, if you think about Jesus as your priest, what it does, if you consider it, if you meditate on it, one of the effects that it has is it takes your eyes off of your circumstances, which can be terrible, and it places them on the love of God in Christ. And it reminds you of your heavenly calling. It reminds you of all that you've been given, all that you have in him. And it helps you push on. It helps you keep going. Jesus is also the faithful son as we consider Jesus. That's one of the main things in this verse that he is showing us is that He's comparing Jesus to Moses, and he says they were both faithful, right? And so this is just a dispositional faithfulness. And it's one of the things that 
for Jews, they hold Moses so highly because he was faithful. He wasn't perfectly faithful. That's not what it's talking about. But he was faithful to God, and God used him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and to lead them through the wilderness. And so he's saying, yes, and Jesus was faithful just like Moses, but now he contrasts Jesus and Moses. And he said, the honor that Moses received was the honor of a servant who did a good job. The honor that Jesus receives is the honor of a son. It's the honor of a faithful son. For a servant, there's a reward. There's a payment. It's a contractual kind of relationship. For a son, there's an inheritance. There's a covenant. There's a sharing that is different, that's more intimate, that's closer than for a servant. And so the author is showing, as great as Moses was, Jesus is that much better because he is the son. He is the son. And it's in him as the son that this house is being built. And he uses this really interesting metaphor. And it's something that we have to slow down and look at for a second because it shows us that not only is Jesus the faithful son, he is also God. Undeniably. You have to, again, you have to throw Hebrews out of the Bible if you don't think Jesus is God. It's so clear. He says, Jesus has counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house is than the house itself. So Jesus is being equated to the builder of the house in this analogy. And then it says in verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So the author just shows us that Jesus is God. This is God's will. This is the second person of the Trinity who is equal in power, in glory, in substance with the Father and the Spirit, who desires this to happen, who desires a house to be built, for who desires to be our brother. It's God's will for him to do this work. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing the will of God for us enacted, played out. So we're seeing God is our calling. So what prevents us from considering Jesus? What are the things that are going to distract us from that? And I, I was thinking about self-medication as kind of one of those things. Like the various ways, not just through substances, not, not just through literal medication, but we do this through um, entertainment so often. We do it through experience. We do it through kind of like wanting to feel something. And so we will distract ourselves by our own experience instead of doing what the author tells us to, which is consider Jesus. Don't consider your own experiences. Again, not saying that those experiences aren't important. But if you look at your experiences, you're going to get discouraged. You're going to be pulled away from your heavenly calling. So consider Jesus, because it's only in considering him that you will see how God is the solution to all of those longings that you have. He is the thing that you're searching for as you're looking for so many different things.
And then finally, consider your confidence. So towards the end of this passage, we see that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And that house, we are his house. And this is the first of a few different troubling passages in Hebrews. And I'm just going to acknowledge that they're troubling. But this is the least troubling of all of them. So he's, it's a very gentle introduction to it. Because it's an if-then statement. Right? You are his house if. It's like, ooh, we don't like that. That implies something. That implies that we might not be his house. And it's like, yeah, the author wants you to feel that weight. And we'll get into that later in the book. But here, I think what he's actually trying to show you is that all of this, all of the persevering, all of the holding on, all of the fighting that you do in the Christian life, it's worth it. It's worth it. Think about the beauty and the glory of that destination, of the end of all of this. Being God's house, God dwelling with us, God dwelling in us. It's a beautiful thing to consider. The creator of the universe, the most beautiful thing. Think about the most beautiful thing you've ever seen and just realize that that is a small, little, tiny ripple of God. Because everything beautiful is only a radiation from him. He is the source of all beauty. And so we are going to be so overwhelmed by that type of connection, that type of intimacy, that type of belonging that God would so closely relate to us through his son that he would consider us his dwelling place where he will be for eternity. And so, yes, this is talking about persevering, of making it. And one of the signs that you have, that demonstrate that you have received that heavenly calling, that you are trusting in Christ, is that you do persevere. But you do persevere. That means that you do struggle. You do strive. And that doesn't mean you're earning that calling. But it's you're working it out. You are demonstrating to the world that you are following a crucified Savior. And the description he gives of what this looks like is holding fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It seems kind of abstract. I was wrestling with that for a while. Holding fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. And I was kind of wrestling with that. And then I had a conversation with, um, with one of my mentors and he told me, he's getting older, um, but not super old, um, but he told me that he's got some type of degenerative issue with his eyes and that he's going blind. And it's a matter of a few years probably before he can't see. Um, and I was kind of like, ooh, how, how are you doing with that? And how he answered was at the same time very convicting and also kind of frustrating because he he just like couldn't be bothered with it. And it's not only that, but he, was, he started getting excited about what it meant and how much closer he was getting to eternity, to glorification, to the fulfillment of everything that he's been 
longing for for 70 years. And it was, I mean, it was kind of frustrating because, like, that's not how I would respond, <laughs> I don't think. I would be, like, I would be really, I would be mad. I would be bitter. I would struggle to remain focused on my heavenly calling because I'm not going to be able to drive anymore. I'm not going to be able to see my grandchildren grow up. I'm not going to be able to disciple people in the same way that I've been able to. I'm not going to be able to serve my church in the same way. I'm not going to be able to see the beauty of God's creation. And I would think of all this that I've lost. He was thinking about what he was gaining, of what he had. And I was like, that is boasting in hope. That is what it looks like to have confidence in Christ of a saint that is persevering. And I was thinking about Jesus. And later in Hebrews, we're going to see after the chapter 11, which goes through all of the heroes of our faith, all the heroes who have gone before us, and then it focuses in on Jesus. And it says this about Jesus, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, despising the shame, endured the cross. That's what it looks like. When we are the recipients of a heavenly calling, when we are made holy brothers and sisters, when we have our confidence in Christ, we endure our cross. We follow Jesus because of our hope. Our hope is not of this world. It's in a world to come, and it's secure. It's unfading. It's certain. So have your confidence in the calling that you have in Christ. And this is going to continue to be unpacked in Hebrews, and it's going to continue to be elaborated. And so don't get, this is another temptation I think I have. I want, I want to get there right away. I want to be the one who is like, oh, yes, I have my confidence perfectly. It's like, no, just do what he's telling us. Consider Jesus. Consider him a little bit more than you have. Think on him in your pain. Think on him in your discomfort. Think on him in your dissatisfaction. And that is one of the means that God will use to bring us to that final destination, to that conclusion, to build us into his house. And the grasses wither and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the practical ways that you help us, that you show us how to deploy our minds in the battle for faith, that you show us where to look, that you have given us your word, and that you reveal yourself through it, that you show us who you are, and that you meet us in it, Lord, for our entire lives. God, I ask that we would develop a love for that, that we would slow down, that we would sling off all of the distractions, all of the other things that we consider that make us scared, all the other things that we consider that make us false promises, and that we would center our attention on you and your certainty in your son. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.